Hi there, it's Amy here. Thanks so much for listening to the COVID vaccines episode. I hope you enjoy it. I'm just interrupting on the beginning of the episode to let you know that there is now a second episode which has been produced. Um, I've just dropped a few bits of extra information following um, the publication of this episode. People have had extra questions that um, we didn't cover particularly in this episode. So if you want extra information about vaccination following having had coronavirus yourself so if you're zero positive um do you then need the vaccine and what does that then mean for you in terms of efficacy and we cover that in the follow-up episode we also cover a little bit more detail on um fertility and conception so there's a myth around infertility with the vaccine so we go into a bit more depth on that myth and where that comes from and why it's not the case Um, and also a little bit more information around conception um, with the vaccination and timing of that and things like that and finally we cover allergy and anaphylaxis so the possible side effect of the vaccine of anaphylaxis Um, and we go into a little bit more depth about um allergies so if you're looking for information on any of those three topics it might also be worth checking out the second episode which should also be in your podcast feed thanks very much for listening and as ever get in touch if you have any follow-up questions or worries you can get us at i am a health visitor at gmail.com thanks very much enjoy the episode Hello and welcome to the I Am A Health Visitor podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amy. And uh, first of all, wishing everyone a happy new year. Hello everybody. <laughs> happy, happy new lockdown. Yeah. Um, it's, no. it's been random. I've never had a beginning of year so weird. There was a meme going around yesterday about the, we've had the seven day free trial yeah, of 2021 yeah, yeah. and we'd like to return it, thanks. I was just and, about uh, to say that. It was just like, oh my God, yes, it's been bonkers. Um, But lots of um, positive things. We're talking about something today which is hopefully going to be really positive and hopefully bringing a bit of a change back to the old normal, we would hope. Well, hopefully it's the way out of this mess, hey? Um, This mess we seem to have found ourselves in. We we seem to have gone from having no vaccines to vaccines coming out of our ears over the last few weeks. Yeah, they're like buses, folks. Yeah, and it's something which has been such a hot potato on um, a lot of our professional um, social media groups and things. So um, we couldn't resist really having a look at um, getting into it. And because I know there are health visitors or people related to health visitors who are even going to be doing the immunisations and things as Mm -hmm. well. So um, definitely well worth um, looking at from every angle. Definitely, definitely. And I think it's really healthy to question anything you know that is going on having that kind of scientific curiosity is a really good thing um to have so yeah you know credit to anyone who is um listening to this in the hope of learning a bit more information about um the vaccines and we're hoping to cover how they work the safety profile um and the efficacy levels for the different three different vaccines that are out there that are approved at the moment um, and you know this is <laughs> this podcast episode is likely to be outdated the minute it's published in the sense that more vaccines are being um, approved literally you know left right and center like you said but um, mm-hmm. at the minute we're covering the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine and the um, Moderna vaccine and the Moderna it's N I 
AID is the other body that worked with Moderna to do the third one. Cool. And so should we start off with a little bit of a recap about you know, what what are vaccines? What do we do with yeah. them? How do they work? What's the point of them? What are they aiming yeah. for? Yeah. Mm. So first off, obviously, with a vaccine, you're aiming for the prevention of severe disease. So the number one thing any vaccine is aiming for is to stop you getting seriously sick. Yeah. So it enables your immune system to fight the disease, lowers hospitalisation rates, mortality, ITU, those type of things. Yeah. Um, and I suppose especially with this one, mm-hmm. um, with the nature of COVID, the nature of the pandemic, one of the big things with this one is looking at actually stopping the symptomatic transmission and the asymptomatic transmission yeah so that's the second thing that you always aim for with a vaccine is the transmission reducing transmission if we can stop this being transmitted particularly with asymptomatic transmission then that'll stop the virus in its tracks so that that is literally the way we achieve um back to normal level society yeah um and I suppose one of the worries with this one is that everything's so very new. Mm-hmm. We don't have that long-term data about you know whether it will completely stop everything in its tracks. Is that a reason for us to be concerned and for us not to want to have the vaccine? So it's not... A, I, well, I don't think it's a reason personally to not to want to have the vaccine. Um, it certainly is something that they're still looking at. So we know that generally vaccines can lower transmission rates by reducing your viral load. So that's right. just a general thing that we know about vaccines. Um, we don't yet know whether these particular vaccines do that or to what extent that they do that. Because in order to do to have that knowledge, we'd have to do either challenge studies, which is where they take a group of people who've been vaccinated and they, um, you know, expose them to COVID and they see whether those people then um, develop COVID or not. Or we'd have to study a population of very high risk of transmission and then do regular asymptomatic testing. So neither of those things have taken place yet. So we don't know, but... I'm guessing there are probably some studies because I mean there have been the trials done with people who had I know of um, a former colleague um, mm. from A&E who is part of the Oxford trial mm. and so I believe they are keeping track with her as to her Absolutely. contacts and how she does and things so it's quite good that one I mean I know one of the things that has been talked about one of the reasons that this has been able to come through so quickly is that a lot of the 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 waiting and the time it takes to get vaccines approved is often getting the funding for the trials and getting the trials up and running. And because these have all got up and running so quickly, they're able to be doing everything all in one go quickly, aren't they? Well, yeah, I mean, talking about how quickly they've developed is definitely one of the things I'd like to talk about when we talk about one of the, you know, some of the worries that people have around these vaccines, because I think that does prompt worry for people. But, um, you know, we'll talk about that when we when we kind of get there but the you know i think the thing about the transmission with the vaccines is that the fact that we don't yet have the evidence that they lower the transmission doesn't mean that they don't lower it so it's you know the data that we have all three of the vaccine providers have suggested that their data might intimate that they will reduce the transmission but we haven't yet got enough categorical data to claim it you know without doubt so it is likely that they will reduce transmission to a greater or lesser extent by reducing an infected person's viral load but we don't have a number on it we don't know exactly how by how much that will be but you know that that data is coming um and as i said that's only one of the two 
aims of a vaccine. The main one is obviously to prevent you getting seriously sick. And so that's the one that we do have good data on. Okay. Mm. And do all three of these immunisations work on a similar mechanism? Um, I've heard lots about mRNA. Yeah. Um, Is that the same sort of thing that's happening with all three of them? Not all three of them. So, yeah, there's been a lot of talk about mRNA. I think it sounds scary because people are thinking, oh, God, they're injecting me with DNA. Um, you know, those types of things. And there's been a lot well, it's of the whole mo- It's the modified, it. isn't it? It's yeah, yeah, exactly. Of, we've heard yeah. so much about genetic <laughs> modification and fear about crazy soya beans and things over I know. the years. I mean, hopefully <laughs> we don't need to kind of debunk that myth in this particular uh, population of people that listen to this podcast because hopefully you're all fully aware that none of the vaccines will alter your DNA. DNA, okay. However, um, there's two different mechanisms that they operate on, and one uses an mRNA. So the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine um, both use an mRNA um, platform, and the Oxford right. AstraZeneca vaccine uses a viral vector platform. So it's two slightly different ways of doing the same thing, essentially. Um, uh. Okay. And there's been a lot of talk about how the mRNA is a totally new technology and it's never been tested in viruses, um, in vaccines even. Um, it is true that we don't currently have mRNA vaccines in use yet, like they're new, it's a new thing to be used in vaccines. It's not a new technology, so we've been using mRNA in drugs generally and in other, you know, we've got lots of scientific evidence about the use of it, just not specifically in a vaccine yet. Um, I see. And also... Okay they're not as different as you might think from the press attention that the difference has got so i see there's a lot they have in common um both of them are trying to elicit the body's own kind of natural immune response in a safe way so yeah they're trying to prompt the body to produce the natural immune response but without actually having the danger of having the virus yes okay no so i done my bit of research you see it's one of those things i try try and get in there with a bit of research yeah yeah um so yeah i found this explanation actually which was really useful is from the academy of breastfeeding medicine which we'll get onto properly later on yeah but actually this is really useful way of understanding it so the vaccine is made up of lipid nanoparticles Mm -hmm. um so this is relating to the pfizer one but it will also be similar way it it sort of has although even with the astrazeneca it's going to have similar reaction so these nanolipid particles it's injected into the muscle in the arm and it's taken up by the muscle cells they transcribe the rn the mRNA mm-hmm. um, or they react to the adenovirus factor and mm-hmm. produce a spike protein and it's this spike protein that then stimulates the immune response yeah exactly and so the unique thing with this immunization is that it's that spike protein that is going to react to the covid or the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein mm-hmm. it's like mim- mimicking that protein isn't it that yeah. then gives the body the immune response to then have the antibodies ready and raring to attack. Yeah. I do go a bit Dr. Range when I start talking about immunizations. I apologize to uh, dragging the high level down into uh, imaginary white 
cartoon things. And I used to watch, it's all I used I remember when I was a kid there was a program on channel for a cartoon on channel four on a Sunday morning. If anyone else watched it, let me know what it was called. But it was about the human body and it did literally have like cartoon white blood cell men and Excellent. red blood cell men and women all going around and sort of fighting and things. And that is the mental image I am left with even after like twenty years of nursing and nursing education and things. In my head, it's still imaginary cartoon figurines. Well, you know what? Whatever works. And I think, to be honest, in that analogy, it's actually not a bad analogy. And your what the vaccine is doing is giving your, you know, your little men in white coats that are naturally occurring in your body. Dungarees, actually. Sorry, they, oh, were, they sorry. were white with white dungarees. White they dungarees. were very practically dressed. Importantly, very practical. importantly, yeah. it's dungarees they're wearing. Um, it's giving those dungaree-wearing men the tools that they um, need. I'm sure there were a few women in there too. Uh, the women, okay, okay. So it's giving dungaree-wearing men and women <laughs> the tools they need to fight this virus. That's, I mean, we could use that as the tagline for the podcast, to be honest. Um, <laughs> oh dear, okay. I'm sorry. No, I didn't realise I'd go off on one so quickly. That's excellent. <laughs> we're degenerating already. Um, but no, you're right. So they're both both of the vaccines, the Oxford one and the um, the Pfizer one. Um, both the, the methods, the mRNA vaccine and the viral vector vaccines, both target the S spike protein, um, which is where the coronavirus gets its name. So it's called Corona because it's the Latin for crown. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So like a crown it's shape, crown you know, all spiky. Shape, yeah. Um, and that is the same so protein that's on the surface of all It is that bizarre thing where the random bits of biology, biological science, the kids now know that no, never even would have come up for us. It's true, it's true. It is bizarre. It's like, yeah, they now know about coronavirus and know that it's because it's crown-shaped. Yeah, and... exactly. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, that useless bit of information that everyone's thinking is now, you know, coming into its fore. So it's that spiky protein that's what um, they have kind of used because it's been promising in, in previous vaccines for different coronaviruses. They've found that to be useful target for vaccination. Um, so it's using that same protein. Um, I just feel like the, other, the other mental image I have is, yeah, who we talk about, you know, coronavirus crowns. I just imagine these S-spike protein antibodies just always being like going around and just putting like tennis balls on the end of the spikes of the... <laughs> And just sort of <laughs> useless now. I have no spiky bits. <laughs> Rendered uh, impotent. Yeah, it's it's by been the a long year. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, they both make the. They both use this spike protein. They're both prompting, as you said, they're prompting our body cells to produce an antigen. Um, and an antigen is essentially a copy of the coronavirus protein um, that we then can show to our immune system cells so that they know what to recognize Um, and that antigen will then lead to t-cell response and antibody response so we'll produce t-cells that know how to recognize and destroy the virus and antibodies to fight it and all of this is obviously before you've had the actual virus so you've got this kind of immune response without actually having to have the danger of catching it um and both of the different mechanisms the mrna and the viral vector both use versions of the virus that can't replicate in the body so the only real difference in them is what's used as the platform to prompt the cells to produce the antigen 
Okay. okay. So in the Oxford vaccine, they're using a um, a chimpanzee adenovirus. Um, Fly me. Yeah, I know. But uh, which I was surprised, but apparently very common. Chimpanzees yeah. apparently good. Well, it's the thing. It's funny that. how we we are kind of looking at this under the microscope because, or so so closely because mm. it is that funny thing. Where, and I know one of our early podcasts was on the was about the six in one immunization. Yeah. And I don't remember us going into this much depth Absolutely about not. what it is. And yet, when it comes to the COVID immunisation, because it's such a big issue, we're all kind of everyone. really breaking it down into yeah. everything. And it's interesting, and hopefully and it will mean we have continued you know, improved knowledge about yeah immunizations going forward and i think to be honest that's what i was hoping to achieve with this podcast and with all the reading and research i've done for it because actually i think when you have the information you do feel more confident and you do feel more um well informed and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be well informed about what you're putting into your body that's perfectly appropriate thing um so yeah so just to give people a little bit of kind of detail on that because i think it is is useful to have the detail um they use this chimpanzee adenovirus and they're using that as a platform so they um they use the genetic sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 so the covid covid-19 um spike protein um and they adapt that they um genetically break <laughs> They genetically weaken that um, that viral vector to make it so that it can't replicate in human cells. And then it's that viral vector which is then injected. And that viral vector then is uptaken into the cells and prompts our body's own cells to produce the antigen, which then leads to the, um, the T-cell changes and the antibody response that we need and want okay so that's the astrazeneca that's the oxford the viral vector vaccine the other method is the pfizer bioentech and the moderna so both the pfizer and the moderna use an mrna um, vector so instead of a viral vector they're using a platform of mrna um, and they essentially exactly the same exactly the same except for this is the actual genetic code of COVID-19 that they're using as the vaccine itself. So instead of injecting that into the chimpanzee viral vector, they're coating it in lipid particles um, and again, genetically weakening it, genetically um, breaking it so that it can't um, reproduce, so that it's not dangerous anymore. Um, And then that mRNA is then what prompts the host cells to produce the antigen um, make the target spike protein and then it's that target spike protein that antigen that stimulates the immune response the t-cells and the antibody response so if you see how it's literally it's fine detail that makes those two yeah. things different it's not a yeah. hugely vastly different scary thing it's actually nice. very similar in terms of its mechanism yeah which i think is reassuring hopefully well i found it reassuring anyway because um you know, when you actually understand how they work, they don't seem to be such a, you know, the Pfizer and the Moderna don't seem to be such a terrifying new science. Do you see what yeah. I mean? Um, no, definitely. Because we definitely. do actually know a lot about that. Yeah. Well, I think it is that thing that's caught everyone on the hop a bit is that they're kind of, oh my word, really worried about the, how these immunizations work. And actually, probably the greater fear, as I said, is like 
actually, how does any immunisation work? Do we properly understand it? We're certainly paying more attention to this one, or I am, than yeah. I have other ones. Um, well, I think so, it's yeah. because it's happened so quickly that we've really, it's stayed current and there has been so much in the media about, or sort of in the general media about it as well, mm-hmm. and about how the the research into its efficacy and things was going forward. Yeah. That it kind of felt very current and felt... It felt everyone's been very vested in this, whereas normally it's sort of, I mean, like I said, going back to the six in one podcast, yeah, we, we, I remember us talking about how this is an immunization that had been used in loads of other countries for 20 years or so before we started using it. And yet with this one, it all feels, yeah, it's like that thing of we've got nowhere near that amount of data and research into it. Well, um, by the time we, but... when we did the hexavalent vaccine episode, um, really the UK was so slow on the uptake with that. And we were, we were begging for the vaccine yeah. by the time the UK got around to approving the thing. So it certainly wasn't new, you know. No. Um, so there is a difference there. But I think let's yeah. talk about efficacy because that yes. has been in the news a lot. So there's been this thing between efficacy and effectiveness. So obviously efficacy is a measure of effectiveness. We want whether it's whether it works or not. Yeah. But if effectiveness technically is a real world term, so that means that how it's working when it's actually out in the real world, efficacy is what they use in trials. You know, that's the Uh term they use in trials. That's the only difference between those things. Um, and I suppose we've had different efficacy figures, haven't we? And I think uh, what you were saying about the presentation of these efficacy figures in the media is important, actually, because it's almost be presented as um, which one's best. Yeah. You know, like, oh, this competition, yeah, no, one's got 70% been... and one's got 95 And in fact, even when I've seen posts on Facebook and things of friends who are mm. working on the front line having had the jab, mm. nearly first or second comment from a friend is always, which one did you have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like, well... It's almost pitted as if these um, these these vaccine groups are all against each other, you know? And I think that's a really kind of artificial media creation, to be honest, because what we know is that we need to have multiple jabs to tackle this. Like, we're going to need... This is not a one, one vaccine solution to this pandemic. We need a lot of people being injected with a lot of vaccines um, to get out of this now. So, you know, it's very artificial, that kind of competition um but ultimately we've got incredibly effective data you know such impressive results from all of these vaccines really um in particular the pfizer vaccine and the moderna vaccine are very very high they're very very similar um so in the pfizer vaccine they had forty three thousand four hundred and forty eight um participants wow um yeah so these are big trials you know this is yeah. um, phase three, phase three trials here so this is not you know small numbers they are big numbers no. um and they found overall a 95 percent efficacy rate in that so Blimey. they found in their um actual cases so symptomatic cases and they they used um tests for those who displayed symptoms so in their um study they found eight cases of coronavirus so tested positive and were displaying symptoms in their vaccinated group whereas they found 162 cases in their placebo group so that is an extremely effective vaccine 
Um, And it's a similar for the Moderna um, trial. They found 196 symptomatic cases in total. 11 of them were in the vaccinated group and 185 were in the placebo group. Blimey. And did they have a similar number cohort that they were using to test it on? Um, They had a very big cohort as well, yeah. Um, Yeah. Just looking at the number. Um, Am I right in thinking as well that testing occurred in several different countries so these vaccines haven't just been tested right. in one cohort although i mean and I, I know that obviously ethnically countries are very mixed these days anyway so it's not like they would only have been testing upon one particular cultural or racial population as well but we know that there are there are different demographics of of um, ethnicities in different countries so it's really good to know it was tested in a range of countries covering a wide range of of people especially as we know that um, black and ethnic minorities were often far more um, affected by covid have had much higher rates of deaths yeah um it's good to know that that has been uh sort of accounted for yeah definitely and um especially with the Moderna actually trial, they did have um, good uh, balance in terms of Bain communities. They had similar um, numbers in reflection to the population. Um, That's really they actually had 30,420 um, volunteers in the um, Moderna. Wow. So again, big numbers. This is kind of as I say, phase three trials, which do have big numbers yeah. in them. That's the purpose of a phase three trial. Yeah. Um, so that's the efficacy for those two, um, the Moderna and the Pfizer, um, yes. and both very impressive, very clear stats. Yeah. Um, people might have seen in the news the Oxford vaccine got a lot yes. more kind of attention over the efficacy. Yeah, and seemed to have lower efficacy. And I wonder if this is still why people are a bit like, you know, oh, good, you've had the Pfizer one, yeah. rather than looking at the Oxford. So let me explain um, a little bit about where those different efficacy numbers came from, because there were three efficacy numbers reported in the press um, for the yeah. Oxford vaccine, and that, I think, led to a lot of confusion um, and worry around that. Um Obviously, the Lancet article gives you the full analysis of the different groups and how the error came about and all of that. Um, But officially, so the Oxford trial was 11,636 participants. Um, They had 101 COVID cases in their control arm and 30 in their intervention arm. So that gives them an overall vaccine efficacy of 70%. Okay, so across all their groups, all the different um, arms of the trial and different places that they did um, the trial in, that's the overall vaccine efficacy, 70%, when they pooled all the numbers. Yeah. Importantly, what I would note is that they had zero serious illness in their intervention group. So the group that had the vaccine, they had zero serious illnesses across that number um, compared to to 10 hospitalizations in the control group. So um, it does appear to give a very, very good level of protection against serious illness. Um, Interestingly, what happened in the Oxford trial was there was a essentially an error. Um, Yes. Yeah, so two manufacturers used two different methods, basically. They had the manufacturer at Oxford Vaccines Group. They have, like, a small manufacturing centre there that can only make about, 
I can't remember how many, but it's a small number of vaccines. So they then used a different manufacturer and those two different manufacturers used different methods for expressing um, the density of the particles in the vaccine. Right. So they wanted to try and make sure they were using a safe dose and making it comparable across different samples. So to do that, they used a particular scientific technique that verified the density. And what that did was overestimate the density in one of the samples. Okay. So that then meant that they agreed with the medicines and healthcare regulatory agency a lower dose um, to be to make sure that they weren't um, giving more of one vaccine. Um, okay. And that then meant that they gave a lower dose than planned f- okay. to around one thousand three hundred participants in their study. Um, they then noticed that they had much less localised response to the vaccine. So, you know, no swelling around the vaccine site or um, kind of, you know, you get typical vaccine signs that you've had a vaccine, like an achy arm or a bit of tenderness, that kind of thing. Um, They were getting a lot less localised response. And then um, they then, that then prompted them that they had got that, that dose was actually... A lower dose than they'd planned to give so they then okay. gave a full dose for the second um booster dose okay in that group right so yeah. they then had essentially a trial within a trial there so they've got their normal sample that are having two doses two full doses and they had a mini sample of 1300 people that had a half dose followed by a full dose Okay, so they then ended up with two different efficacy figures for those two groups. So the two full doses ended up with 60% efficacy and um, the half then full dose ended up with 90% efficacy. Okay. So that's what's led to the different amounts. And we don't know exactly why um, that um, half then full seems to give better protection. Um, But there are other vaccines that have seen that kind of effect. They call it a priming effect. So you get like a prime to the immune system of giving a half dose first. So that's obviously something that's being looked into at the minute. Um, But overall, the trial, obviously, they only know it in retrospect when they look at the data. So the dose that's being given is full dose, full dose. Um, Mm. And the trial data on that is is an efficacy rate of 70%. Okay. Right. So we've got 95% for the Pfizer, 94.1% for the Moderna, and 70% for the Oxford. Um, So all excellent levels of efficacy. They really are very, very good for for vaccines. Excellent levels. So we've been talking about different figures, haven't we? 70%, 94, 95. Um, And I think... This is one of those stats things we were talking about it, weren't we? What does it actually mean, vaccine efficacy? What does yeah. that percentage actually mean? <laughs> no, completely. Because it is that thing where everyone immediately thinks it's how effective it will be in me personally, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. that thing where it comes back to the individual and that's not actually what this talks about, is it? No, so it's a proportionate reduction in cases, okay? So it's a reduced... um risk yeah yeah so it looks at the risk of disease in the vaccinated individuals and the risk of disease in the unvaccinated individuals and then it works out what the percentage of reduction in risk is yeah yeah so if i work that out as an example because i find examples easier in my head if a vaccine's got 50 percent efficacy okay if you've got an example of 100 people 
Yeah. And you imagine that 10 of them get the symptomatic disease in the control group. Yeah. Yeah, so 10 people would catch symptomatic COVID in the control group. Yes. That yeah. would mean with a 50% efficacy level, only five people would get it in the vaccinated group. Right, okay. I see. So if it has an efficacy of 70%, in an example of 100 people where 10 get the symptomatic disease in the control group, only three would get it in the right. um, in the vaccinated group. With 90%, you've got 10 getting symptomatic disease in the control group, only one would get it in the vaccinated group. I see. Because the immediate assumption you lead to is if something's got like 90% efficacy, 10 people would have got it out of 100 of the vaccinated. So it's actually not, it's looking at that ratio of between exactly. the control group to the test group. I Right. Yeah. So... In general, what what they're looking for is a 50% efficacy because that yeah. would still be talking about halving the number of serious cases that we have. Yeah. Okay. So 50% efficacy is actually really very good. <laughs> you know? Yes. It's not, it's not yeah. to be sniffed at. That is good. Um, and is there a kind of minimum limit that is set that vaccinations have to reach? Um, I think in the, in the actual trial data that I've read, um, they say that the null hypothesis, so basically the hypothesis is that um, the vaccine doesn't work, is met at around 30% efficacy. Right. So they consider it to be not really working. Yeah. Below about 30% efficacy. And in terms of for this um, public health, and I don't know whether this also applies to other public health emergencies, is what it probably does, um, but the minimum they were looking for from the vaccines was 50% efficacy. I see. Because, again, you're halving the number of serious cases there. That's If there's oh. 10 cases in the control group, that means only five in the vaccinated group. Yeah. That is a, an improvement worth having. Yeah. So I guess the summary to that is we've got three very effective vaccines. All of them are going to provide a good level of protection. Okay. None of them are perfect, obviously, because a hundred percent is perfection. Um, but they're all. To be fair, I think hundred percent would immediately make everyone very suspicious. suspicious. Yeah. Um, really really you say 100 percent (laughs) really though um but yeah they'd absolutely reduce the risk of having severe covid um so they're effective broadly all of them are (laughs) um (laughs) in some (laughs) yeah add add broadly in once more yeah they all work (laughs) broadly so the next obvious thing is safety isn't it yes yeah, so we know they work. We know how they work. Are they safe? Are so, they? Oh, they, they are. <laughs> Excellent. They right, are. next subject then. Next topic. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to talk Moving about that on. anymore, do we? Do we need to go into detail on that one? Probably. Oh, dear. So, I mean, we know kind of from other vaccines that vaccine side effects are immediate. Yeah. They're sort of general, as with most allergic reactions, it's going to happen very quickly afterwards mm-hmm. yeah within the first minutes hours you know it's no not going to be typically not going to be a slow burner no exactly that we don't have any convincing evidence at all of any long-term health impacts from any vaccine um so i think that's that's hopefully reassuring because the fact that this is therefore the fact this is a new vaccine and so it hasn't been studied in the long long term shouldn't necessarily worry people you know, unnecessary. I don't want people to worry about that unnecessarily because we don't have any yeah. reason to think that a vaccine would cause 
long-term health impacts um and another reassuring thing that i found from looking at all of this um, trial data is that all the serious adverse events that have been reported in all three trials and the serious adverse events have generally been balanced equally across the intervention and control arms okay so generally are roughly the same in the intervention group and the control group. Obviously, in any um, study, you expect adverse events because adverse event is essentially just anything bad that happens to you in the months following this vaccine, health-wise. Yeah. So people get ill, people catch, yeah. pro- people have problems, people die in any... Yeah. You know, when you're talking about those numbers, 30,000, 40,000, even 11, 12,000 people, um, you're going to see um, adverse events. Uh, so the fact is that they're balanced roughly across both yeah. arms, and that's reassuring. Yeah, because there was a case that hit the headlines a bit um, on... I think it was on Reddit or something, mm-hmm. and then got picked up by the mainstream media mm-hmm. about a woman who had this weird kind of blistering occur on her heels and she'd right. been involved in the Pfizer study right. and then it turned out that actually she'd been she'd had the placebo <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. it's like yeah, yeah she was all there going oh don't have the immunization I had the immunization look what happened it's like well actually you love you didn't have the yeah. immunization actually love you know what you had a saline injection that's what you had yeah so yeah. you know it's not too dangerous um and I think um that's the other thing to say where you do see um, an imbalance in adverse events reported by the intervention and the control group um, that's generally because they include reactions at the injection site um, or kind of anticipated adverse events that you might anticipate after any vaccine and in the Pfizer and the Moderna trials they used saline as the control yeah. Um, in the Oxford trial, they actually used a meningitis vaccine as the control arm. Oh, really? Yeah, because they wanted the blinding to be more effective. So they wanted, obviously, the people who were giving the injection and the people who had received the injection to genuinely not know whether they'd received the new vaccine or a well-established safe vaccine. I so see. Obviously, if you've just had an injection of saline, you don't have any response at the site no i mm. oh, of course that's quite clever yeah it so, helps yeah. to stop prevent any um hawthorn effect as well i suppose exactly that yeah that's the purpose so um the way they work then is they set kind of alerts and pauses on safety triggers in these types of trials so um you probably heard in the news about um oxford trial pause due to safety concerns and those types yes. of things yeah 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 so they set um before they start the study and these these things are actually different um for different different trials um but they set what is our kind of level, what will we pause the trial for, um, you know, that we consider to be something that could potentially be related to the vaccine that is causing a problem that needs to be investigated. And then what they do is they pause the trial, they investigate that incident, exactly what's happened, and look into it. They use a panel of independent experts to review whether that adverse incident is caused by the vaccine or not um and yeah. they will continue the trial only if it's deemed to be you okay. know they then use that information to continue it or try so, or mean, cancel it knowing how thoroughly you've been digging into this um <laughs> do you have any information about what happened what yeah the background to these these pauses do, that the oxford trial had i do Amazing. you'll be surprised to hear that i do so the oxford trial of nearly 
24,000 trial volunteers in total and yep. 74,000 person months of safety follow-up. They had three out of 175 reported serious adverse events that were considered possibly related to the vaccine. And those wow. three all resulted in a study pause while they're investigated. Yeah. Okay. So when you see in the news, Oxford trial pause due to safety yes. concerns. Yeah. These are the yeah. safety concerns that are investigated. Of those three, one of them was in the control group. Right. And then there was a case of severe fever in the vaccinated group, um, which resolved fairly quickly and spontaneously. There was no further diagnosis needed. Um, the participant remained in the trial and then had the booster dose with no ill effects. And oh, that was cool. considered to be a, they call it an expected vaccine related event. So we know yeah. that some vaccines cause fever. Um, this was, you know, obviously very, very rare to have a one, one happened. Yeah. Um, um, and that was that was the outcome of that investigation. The final one um, was a case of transverse myelitis, which is inflammation of the spinal cord. Yes, and Quite that was really sorry. Nasty. Yeah, that, that yeah. Can be really... yeah, certainly can be, can't it? Um, can be um, transient, so temporary. Yes. Um, yeah, it was examined by a panel of neurological experts. So this is what I was saying: the investigation process, and they concluded that they couldn't conclusively rule the vaccine in or out as a cause. Wow. Okay. So yeah, that's the, the that one is... one adverse event that could possibly have been related. Okay. Yeah. Um, they did then in the subsequent the rest of the trial as it went on, they didn't find any other cases of transverse myelitis that um were um considered possibly even possibly to be related. There were they two had... additional cases. Oh, right. Um, one of them was found to be in the control group and the other one was related to an undiagnosed um, multiple sclerosis that existed pre-trial. Wow. Blimey. Correct. So imagine yeah. signing up to a trial and then finding out you've got I know. MS. Yeah, bad luck. That's... Yeah, um, but really then, bad luck. But then I suppose in a way as well, when you have it picked up in a trial like that, you probably get the diagnosis maybe. <laughs> quicker than yeah, you maybe. expect. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, um, but that's interesting. And the tricky thing as well, though, is not knowing off the top of my head, as I think most people don't know, how common transverse myelitis is. Because you kind of think, my word, three in that size of population. But actually, given that the population size was including the control group, you know, best part of 25,000 people, yeah. then actually four cases of it could be completely within normal bounds. Yeah, so it is considered to be a rare disease, um, but yes, I think I think you're right. We don't know exactly, um, and it's fair to say that um, that that may have been related. Okay, um, and I'm you know I'm look I'm I'm giving all of the data here. I don't want anyone to feel that I'm not giving all of the information to everyone. Um, that is, you're talking about 24,000 trial volunteers and 74,000 person months of safety follow-up. So yeah. it is, by any stretch, extremely rare if it is considered to be connected. Okay? And if you think about it, I suppose it would be very difficult to rule out um, the vaccine as a cause in the case of transverse myelitis because the very... Uh, it is... You know, if it's a spontaneous onset, which it can be, 
um, and you can't find an, another underlying cause for it, I suppose it would be difficult to categorically rule it out, but that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that it is the cause. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, 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 no, completely, completely. So, yeah, so that's the one um, adverse incident kind of of note, really. Um, there were four... I mean, this is all grim, I'm sorry. I'm just throwing this at you. But there were <laughs> no, four non-COVID-related deaths in the course of the trial, the Oxford trial. One was in the intervention, and all four were not related to the vaccine. So one was a road traffic accident, blunt force trauma, homicide Blimey. and fungal n- pneumonia. Well, at least they're quite definite that you cannot tie any of them into COVID well, or no, the exactly. immunisation, you know, it's like... Yeah, exactly. If it hadn't, yeah, if it hadn't been for uh, the immunisation, that <laughs> blunt thing wouldn't have hit me. Blimey. No. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I don't think the Oxford vaccine can be blamed for blunt force trauma. Um, So essentially what you're hopefully getting from that is that um, the Oxford trial was very safe, um, found the the Oxford vaccine was found to be very safe um, from all of that um, data. In terms of the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, um, they're very similar in terms of the actual components of the vaccine. So, and the um, side effect profiles and um, adverse events profile are also very similar. So, um, we've got. I'm kind of talking about them together, really. Um, the Pfizer vaccine. They found um, 64 vaccine recipients and six control recipients reported lymphadenopathy, which is inflammation of the lymph nodes. And it's generally considered to be a sign of infection and it self-resolves within two weeks. So it's not a serious side effect, but it is a side effect of the vaccine. That's a a big enough difference between intervention and control for them to consider it um, a side effect of the vaccine. Um, And the other thing which is considered to be a rare side effect of both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine is Bell's palsy um, which is left-sided facial drooping again is typically um, self-resolves they say within nine months um, typical self-resolved and it is extremely rare side effect of the vaccine yeah Um, they're saying up to one in a thousand people, and that was both the Moderna and the Pfizer trial. Um, so that is the fact that it was a rare side effect in both trials, the Pfizer and the Moderna, does mean that it's you know it's worth monitoring, and that's something that they're looking at closely. Um, it's an anecdotal finding at this stage, and they're very very small numbers of um, cases. So three vaccine recipients in the Moderna trial. Um, it's it's very small numbers that we're talking at the moment, especially in the context of 30,000, 40,000, 20,000 participants. Um, There were four serious adverse events reported um, in the Pfizer trial. One was a shoulder injury related to vaccine administration. I'm not sure how you get a shoulder injury. Um, One was, again, a lymphadenopathy, um, which was a more severe case of that. Um, one was an abnormal heart rhythm and one was right leg paresthesia, which is obviously pins and needles. Fancy word for pins and needles. Um, They had two vaccine recipients die, one of arteriosclerosis and one of cardiac arrest, and neither of those were deemed to be vaccine-related. Okay? Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, there were three deaths in the Moderna trial um, yeah. in the control group and two in the vaccine group. One was cardiopulmonary arrest and one was a suicide. So again, none of those considered to be related to the vaccine. Um, and no. I, I think it's good that they do have to report all of these serious adverse yeah. events and um, deaths. Obviously, you know, we want it all to be very transparent. <laughs> we want to know yeah. anything bad that happened to anyone. I think it's that tricky thing though, isn't it, where the, the media picks up on the whole it's paused because of a serious yeah. adverse event. Yeah. But then obviously you don't really want national news being on you, you know, hit, telling everyone about your relative's death when it was completely unrelated to well, the no. immunisation trial they happened to be a part of. At and the actually time. there was a really nasty case where um, there was a internet hoax that the first woman ever to receive the Oxford vaccine had died and she hadn't died, she was alive. Yeah. And totally healthy and fine. So yeah. I think, you know, a healthy amount of scepticism about what you see in the media. But hopefully, you know, the level of detail I've gone into there would give yes. you hopefully a view of um the actual facts around the adverse incidents and um deaths and hopefully yeah people feel more informed by that they are very safe vaccines in terms of their safety profile um and they do have very low 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 risk of any problems at all they all have the normal vaccine side effects that you'd expect to see so swelling at the injection site a bit of tenderness a bit of pain possibly a fever possibly a headache those types of side effects but they're generally you know resolving on their own within a few days yeah so all the stuff you'd expect to see really no completely completely so yeah, so that's all I've got on the safety data. So what we've covered there so far, we've got mechanisms um, of how they work. We've got the efficacy, do they work? Are they effective? And they are. And we've got the safety data on, um, you know, the vaccines yeah. and the trials. And I noticed so far in everything you've um, put in there, mm. there's been no mention of the, the microchips or the 5G <laughs> reception that we're meant to be picking up after the immunisation. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sort of hoping that the people who listen to this podcast being public health nurses unqualified, um, I don't need to tell them that the fact that it contains mRNA doesn't control your DNA, doesn't change your DNA, you will not be injected with a government microchip that will control your behaviour. I, I think they know that. Um, but just so that, you know, we'll, you are we'll all aware Gates that, that myth is I out live. there. Yeah, that myth is out there, honestly. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about some of the myths then. Yeah, I love a bit of myth busting, as you know. Me too. Um, so yeah, I mean, Bill Gates—he's not involved, is he? We're not all going to be running on Microsoft <laughs> no. Windows operating systems. Absolutely not. That's the rubbish one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to be running an operating system, you want it to be Apple, don't you? <laughs> and I think it's that big one as well—the fact that you know a lot of us feel like we're iron coated i know i definitely have ended up feeling like i've got a bit of a kind of you know i i I never get ill i'm as strong as an ox and i completely put that down to the amount of exposure i got to everything (laughs) and anything in 10 odd years in children's a and e absolutely um but it's it's not about me, is it? It's no. not about how ill I would get. Um, well, it's not. And also, even if it was about that, I think um, there's a bit of a uh, a fallacy kind of, which does happen that we are all vulnerable to. It's a psychological thing, isn't it? So far, I'm fine. So far, nothing bad's happened to me. So why would I think that, 
you know, this would cause, I've been going out, I've been taking the kids to school, I've been going to the shops, I've been going to work. And so far I've not fallen drastically ill with some horrific, you know, version of COVID. So therefore, you know, I think it's led to this myth that do we even actually need a vaccine? I don't think I'd be that ill if I caught it. Um, I think I think the fact that Nash, I mean we're we're recording this on where are we now the ninth of um, January yeah I think the fact that a state of major incident was declared across I all mean. of London yesterday kind of indicates this is definitely needed no matter how I certainly likely hope we so. feel it is and I hope that you know as I say people who are listening to this podcast probably not likely to have that myth um, yeah however it is out there in the general public so it's worth you know knowing about obviously we know COVID-19 can cause severe illness in anyone yes it's more likely within vulnerable groups but it does have serious impacts on lots of younger healthy people as well and none of us know how our body's going to respond when we catch it we don't know what the predictors are for long covid yeah Yeah. well if we look at the lovely dr zand um i well i don't know if you've got primary school age kids you're probably well aware of dr chris and dr zand or if Mm -hmm. you take an interest in health programs on tv Mm -hmm. and i mean dr zand had um covid yeah. and he's been left with quite a significant heart issue yeah so yeah these are good reasons why to make sure Absolutely. you get yourself protected. i think we know don't we we know all of us know somebody who oh they were so healthy and fit yeah and they used yeah. to run marathons and now you know they can't climb the stairs three months after having covid so yeah. we all know that this is a serious illness so yes Definitely. the answer to that question is yes we do actually need one um yeah. and yes you might actually become very ill so if you have the opportunity to lower the risk of you having a serious uh, manifestation of covid then that is a good opportunity to have um thank goodness we've got the vaccine really from that perspective yeah um there's then the concern about um <laughs> the fact i mean all of the immunizations are backed by rather big pharmacological companies yeah and um we know there's a lot of mistrust about big pharma yeah and Healthy the way that they mistrust. control and uh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you know, anyone who's read players. Ben Goldacre will be saying that actually it's good to have a mistrust of Big Pharma. I think in yeah. this case, you know, it's certainly a good good scepticism to have um, and it's good to want to question and understand anything. That's just, you know, a healthy, scientifically-minded kind of attitude. Um But in this case, well, first of all, if you think of the Oxford vaccine for a start off, um, that was developed by Oxford Vaccine Group. And they insisted at the outset that it's produced at cost for developing countries forever with no end date. And it's produced at cost to all countries during the pandemic. So there's no financial gain from AstraZeneca's part during the pandemic at all and then post pandemic there's no financial gain from developing countries um yeah. so that removes that kind of um financial gain element at least from the oxford vaccine group um obviously they're all governed by the same regulatory bodies and they all have the same safety checks as with other vaccines yeah. and drugs um and they've got independently published trial data all three of them have um what i would say and we kind of touched on this earlier is there is an unusually high amount of scientific and public attention and scrutiny yeah. given to these vaccines. So if I'm honest, I've taken a lot of drugs in my life, not a huge amount, but, you know, a reasonable <laughs> amount of drugs. This is the first one I've ever read the trial data on. Yeah. I've never read trial data on any drug that I've been prescribed, 
the most no. I've done is looked into the side effects and that kind of thing. But I've never gone into this level of detail. Um, yeah. So hopefully, you know, whilst it's good to have a healthy mistrust of all of these, you know, big pharma companies, um, to a certain extent, big pharma is necessary in this um, pandemic. And, you know, we can talk about how quickly they were produced. But yeah, it certainly is kind of a lot of attention and scrutiny on these trials, which is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it is, and just coming on to, like, you know, how quickly they have been developed, because mm-hmm. I know this is something which is causing a lot of suspicion yeah. around, um, you know, sort of, I know my father-in-law is yeah. um, sort of very kind of aware, or, you know, sort of or concerned around this yeah. and worried about taking the immunisation. I think it's probably and... the most common concern that you hear, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I understand that some of it was to do with the fact that, you know, normally these drug companies are waiting for the funding yeah. and having to Absolutely. bid and sort of put in proposals, whereas this time everything's been sped up. They've they've not had that battle. But I mean, is there is there anything we should be concerned about? Yeah, is it all, you know, new and shiny and not been looked at or tested until no. nine months ago six months ago no absolutely not so the way that so how did they actually do this as quickly as they did okay first of all they ran multiple stages of development concurrently so normally they would wait for one stage of development to be completed before they move on to the next stage and that enables them then to not waste money because you might produce a whole load of vaccine that you then have to throw away because it's not effective we know that the majority of vaccines that go into trials are not effective so there is a good risk that you might waste all of your money um Uh and waste all of your work obviously so it's not the way they normally do it but given that we're in a global pandemic and the impact that COVID-19 is having on the world right now um the vaccine producers made the decision that they're willing to and also AstraZeneca as well and and the other pharma companies they've made the decision that they're willing to start production before they've got the trial data in the knowledge they might have to throw it all away yeah. Um, they've used companies that can afford to do that um, and that they can produce the, the vaccine at scale quickly enough. Um, the other thing is the RNA vaccines can be produced very quickly. The mRNA, sorry, the mRNA vaccines can be produced very quickly because they're not, you know, it's they're not a, it's not a virus itself. It's just right. the genetic material. So once yeah. you've got that genetic code, it's a very quick process to produce. Um, and I the see, so it's more a case that, of sorry. So it's more a case of replicating that code. Whereas I guess with viruses, you have to actually yeah cultivate them. I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the Oxford one, which is a more is a viral vector, so it would typically take longer. Um, but they've got a template that they were working on. They've been working on for ten years before this, and they used that same template and that same vaccine um template in other so in the SARS epidemic in the Ebola epidemic um they've used this this template before so they were just waiting for the actual virus genetic code to be inserted um and then they can produce it very quickly um but yeah all the safety process is exactly the same as normal um you know they had the same safety pauses that they needed and we know that they did use them when they needed to um it's it's not new technology um, no. 
that well the oxford vaccine the technology has been being worked on for the last 10 years the pfizer vaccine does involve a slightly new platform as we talked about but it ends in the same immune response and there's good scientific understanding of how that works and there's fundamental research on the technique before so it's it's just a new application of something we already know about i see essentially so hopefully that covers the quick does that cover the quick yeah no i think that does i think that does help us understand um, how everything happened. Mm-hmm. So now on to uh, my uh, field of interest. Yes, <laughs> I'm going to give this entirely to you because we now have Jenny, the IBCLC, and I'm allowed to properly say that now. I know, I passed. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Um, Before, yeah. every time I've said Although... that, you've gone, I'm not yet, I'm not yet, I'm still waiting for my exam results, but now I'm allowed to properly say it. Yes. Woohoo, yes. go you. I know, I got, yeah, I know exactly the percentage I passed by and everything. Woo-hoo. And, Come oh, on then. Yeah. 85%. Oh, you're so good. I so knew you'd the, pa- the passport was 75%. Well so, done. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was like, it was tough. It was, you know. Yeah. And it's I not have easy. Many, friend, many friends who got much higher percentages. Oh, so, well but, done, Jenny. Yeah. I think uh, I'm echoing all the listeners when I say congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, I mean, let's go in with a bit of science first off. <laughs> science. Is it We've safe? Science for the last I'm hour. Breastfeeding. So. I don't want to risk the, the, the health of my baby. Yeah, no. So, uh, so let's consider it. So, let's go back to basics. Let's do a bit of biology first off. Mm-hmm. So, um, we know that milk is made in the breasts, mm-hmm. but how? How does that occur? Because, you know, amazingly, a lot of us don't really understand even. It's just nope. like this magic machine where you put the baby to the breast and boom, the milk comes out. So inside the breast, we have these alveolar units. These are lined in these specialist epithelial cells, which we call lactocytes. Mm -hmm. So these cells are kind of a bit dozy, not really up to much until (laughs) um, within sort of after birth, a few days later, the prostaglandin levels are dropping and then boom, they're activated. Mm-hmm. So these are well perfused by capillaries. They pick up from the um, capillaries the immunoglobulins, the fats, and all the other components that they need for milk production. And this process of making the milk is called lactogenesis. So in these first few days, the lactocytes are really small and the intracellular gaps between them are really big. So this means in this time, maternal substances such as drugs, lymphocytes, immunoglobulins, um, plasma substances and proteins can always leak into the milk. Okay. And that milk at that time is colostrum. So that's why you have these really high levels of antibodies oh, and okay. everything in the milk. That's why your colostrum is such a different composition. Mm-hmm. With this, as I mentioned, with this prostaglandin dropping, these junctions shut so the transmission is less and that's why in the first few days we are thinking especially of drugs during labor and things Mm -hmm. we know this can have this more of this can come through into the milk however in these early days the baby's having such small quantities of colostrum Ah, you think even a teaspoon of colostrum yeah it so it levels out so although there's more drugs coming through it it's actually at a lower level yeah okay yeah and so to actually, in mature milk, to absorb through into the milk, you're looking at um, the protein binding ability of a drug, 
the oral bioavailability. So mm-hmm. if it goes into your GI tract, how much of it actually is going to be absorbed through yeah, your body? Or is it just going to be broken down yeah. and pooed and weed out? Yeah. The maternal plasma levels of a drug and the molecular weight as well. All of these things have a big bearing on it. And yeah. they're all things that you can look further into. I'm happy to signpost anyone who wants more information on this. Mm-hmm. Okay, But these are all factors that are considered. This is why you have some drugs that are safe, some drugs that are not safe. Mm-hmm. Some drugs where a lot of the drugs as well, you have to look at the half-life. When it comes to the mater- the plasma levels, that's often a really important factor in it. Sure. And so it's looking at what the half-life of a drug is, how... You know, how long, it, how many half-lives it takes to vanish from or reduce in the plasma level. Okay. Um, and then we come on to actually, you know, like I said, referring back to what I mentioned earlier about how the vaccine is actually absorbed. So yeah. we know it goes into the muscle cells. Yeah. And so actually it's really unlikely that that vaccine lipid would actually enter the bloodstream. Sure. Let alone going into the breast tissue. Okay. And it's even less likely that that nanoparticle or mRNA will transfer into the milk because of the methods I've just talked about. Yeah, sure. Okay. And especially because a lot of the guys who have been looking at having the immunization who are breastfeeding are breastfeeding babies who are that little bit older. Yeah, we're definitely not looking at vaccinating mums within 24 hours of birth. No, sure. All right. On the whole. Yeah. Okay. Sure. The majority, um, yeah. The majority of them are going to have been well-established feeding just mature and further milk into their journey. About. So it's mature milk. It's at, it's beyond you know, it's beyond the transitional milk. We're into you know, at least a few days a week or so after yeah. they started feeding. Um, and so even if it's itching, what happens to that milk? It goes into the digestive tract. Mm-hmm. So even if anything did go through, it'd be broken up. It has poor bio, poor oral bioavailability. Right, okay. okay? So even if they do so swallow it... Would it. Be, it would be pooed out. Right. However, the far more plausible thing is that the benefits that baby would reap. Okay. okay? If you are still breastfeeding your baby and you have the immunisation, the chances are those antibodies, those T cells that are stimulated, yeah. could transfer in the milk and offer baby protection. In the same way that they do with any, you know, any immune exactly. response, any natural exactly. immune response. Exactly. Okay, this is why we have the whooping cough vaccine. Exactly. Yeah, by in the later stage of pregnancy, so that you can pass those benefits on to baby. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. So then we come on to and and because this was this data was um an explanation was published by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine back in mid December. Right. So we knew this. So how come we knew this when they actually originally released this? Because I think a lot of concerns being caused by the fact that originally they were like, oh, not allowed in breastfeeding women. And so everybody who was breastfeeding went, oh, that must mean it's not safe then. So now they've done a U-turn and they're saying it is okay for breastfeeding women. Nobody trusts it. So why did they originally say that then, if that's the case? So there was a really interesting blog post in the BMJ that got saved, um, got shared widely in the uh, the breastfeeding circles that I now move in yes um and it was actually by two yeah it was by two doctors Helen Hare and Kate um Warmersley who are both kind of um one is a c a c22 
and yeah, a, a C two um a C T two sorry and an F Y two. Okay. Both are breastfeeding mothers, and lo and behold, the research into breastfeeding comes from doctors who are breastfeeding. Yeah. Because until they're breastfeeding, yeah, we don't. They, have they're any just that. That's that. just like that was just that one afternoon in a med school training, yeah. and it goes by the by. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, this blog post is a brilliant takedown of the issues and mm-hmm. they highlight everything so they they explain how the mhra um the um medicines and healthcare regulatory authority thank you <laughs> it was on the tip of my tongue but thank <laughs> you um they saw the absence of data as a risk despite there being ongoing evidence of generally inactivated and live vaccines being okay to give breastfeeding mums, yes. not adversely effective. You know, they know that there is this poor bioavailability um, and that you know, there is actually the benefit of them re- of babies receiving these antibodies. So when there's instead of data, they mean, you mean literally that there were no breastfeeding mums in those trials that we've talked about. But yes. we actually have a lot of data about how drugs are absorbed, about how milk is produced, yeah. about how, all of those things yeah. that you've just described. We have a lot of yeah. data. So it's not true to no. say that there's no evidence that it's no. safe. There was also what seemed to be an assumption that actually this would impact very few healthcare professionals. <laughs> Um, yeah, because we're just despite... the strange weirdos that are breastfeeding. Yeah, over completely. There. Yeah, yeah. So, so a very you know <laughs> assumption that there were very few healthcare professionals who would be breastfeeding, um, despite the fact that they are in public health and the guidelines are that you know to feed until two years plus. Um, <laughs> I've never been and it considered to weird. Be... You know, no, <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm just don't, a standard don't. human, not a unicorn. Well, it is that thing where I think back, and even you know, ten years ago, seven years ago, you know, I, I feel like if I was having my my children now, my feeding journey would be so different. Mm-hmm. Even though I feel quite happy with how things went, I know there would be differences. Sure, yeah. Um, because I feel like things are so much more accepted now. Yeah. Um, but even, just, yeah, even the message... with that extra acceptance, we still face the fact that something new comes out and it's just assumed that it won't be safe in breastfeeding. And, and the assumption is yeah. that because not many people are doing it, when in actual fact, obviously, it is a big proportion of health professionals. Yeah, completely. Well, also, it's just the message that sends out, you know, we promote breastfeeding, but we're not expecting you to carry on breastfeeding. Yeah, yeah, um, sure, yeah. The perception of breastfeeding being a lifestyle choice. Yeah, it's just something um, you can just choose to stop. Oh, completely, completely. Because we, hey, what's wrong? You can just turn it off like a tap, can't you? Yeah, exactly. Um, no problems. With and it's that. just that thing of you know we know from Amy Brown's work about breastfeeding grief, and yeah. you know there have been there are mums who took the urgent decision to wean their child off of breast oh, no. to then have the immunisation. Yeah, heartbreaking. And it? just that you know, and the risk of mastitis and. Just the general discomfort and everything that goes with that. And just the whole kind of... And the whole issues around, you know, if you're trying to conceive and things. I'm currently breastfeeding my 21-month-old. And when I heard that this wasn't available in breastfeeding mums, I was genuinely like, oh, God, I'm in trouble now because... You know, I plan to natural term wean. I plan to just breastfeed yeah. her until she doesn't want to breastfeed anymore. And that's a parenting yeah. decision that I've made is important to me. It's not just something that's like, oh, it's just like, you know, eating cake or deciding to well, ride a bike. It's it's you, not, you, it's bigger than that. It's more important to me yeah. than that. So you, you mean, shouldn't you're not be just kind doing of minimised it sh- in that way. 
I was gonna say it means you're not just doing it to show off then, no? <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Don't just it's really actually, like yeah. getting your boob out in public. It's just because <laughs> I like strangers seeing my nipple. Oh yeah. Although I have to be yeah, honest, definitely. that hasn't been a big problem for me the last year or so. Because <laughs> I've mostly been sitting in my own living room. But you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it just covers this wider issue around you know research routinely discriminating against women. And actually, you know, excluding them from the evidence base Mm. and almost as if, you know, it's that almost sort of paternal, patriarchal kind of thing of, oh, we know, you know, taking away that informed choice and that right to choose whether they are impacted or not. And interestingly, in um, sort of, I think it was via social media, but over 400 doctors expressed an interest in having the vaccination and then donating breast milk yeah to be able to check the impact i volunteered for that as well yeah Mm. um and so finally on the 6th of january um the joint committee on vaccination immunology um confirmed that that breastfeeding mothers could have either the oxford or the pfizer um vaccination and continue to breastfeed as normal yeah um they amended their previous um, highly cautious advice um, and all you know have, ex- have said that actually you know if high risk ex- you know if risk of exposure is high and can't be avoided then there's an un- you know or if they have um, health conditions which could actually make them incredibly high risk of severe complications from covid then of course they should vaccinate absolutely um, they are continuing to say as they have to do with everybody that it is down to individual choice. They yeah. cannot insist upon vaccination. If someone doesn't want the vaccination, then that, they have choice, that right yeah, to choose. They have that um, right, yeah. And also, you know, the um, trying to conceive, they say that they no longer need to be avoiding having the immunisation. And yeah, the interesting, yeah. again, that this that the blog post in the BMJ pointed out was that there had been no consideration as to whether men who are trying to conceive should avoid yeah, having the jab. That hadn't even occurred that, to you me. Know, could, that, could that affect their sperm? Yeah, that hadn't <laughs> even occurred to me. No. And yet it doesn't because the onus is always on the woman. Yeah, you're so because right. Because trying so to right. conceive only impacts a woman, doesn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Women are the only ones involved in conception, as we know. Yeah. Um, so, um, so it's now considered perfectly safe to breastfeed yes. and have these vaccines. And people so, shouldn't feel any worry or hesitancy around that. No. And the worry and, and hesitancy that's been out there was based entirely on wrong theoretical, Theoretical, unproven risk. Oh, dear. Well, the damage um, they've caused the, by that, I mean, honestly. Well, completely, completely. And the important thing is that um, the patient group directives, because obviously the immunisations are given under under patient group directive which if anyone isn't aware of patient group directive means that someone who isn't a pharmacist isn't a doctor is allowed to give the drug Mm -hmm. under a particular set of criteria Mm -hmm. so they have to have done some training to be able to um give medicine under patient group directives they're often used in A&E for -hmm. things like even things like the emela cream Mm -hmm. paracetamol Mm -hmm. antihistamines um sabutamol I'm trying to think of all the ones I did in in my A&E days but they roughly mean that if you have passed the exam oh yeah pass the test to know that you are competent to be able to do this then under these criteria you are allowed to give to the these particular cohort so you have to make sure the the patient re- meets those 
criteria and then you are allowed you are covered by this this directive that was updated on the 5th of january Mm -hmm. now the one issue i have and i know that even in the day or so following that there were still people being told they could not have the immunization because they were breastfeeding um people who had been honest because they had seen on social media that yep they're fine to have yeah that Mm -hmm. it's it's okay now who were honest and when asked if they were breastfeeding said yes I am and were then told oh no you can't have it now we know we know that everyone ends up swimming under huge amounts of emails but you would think there would be some more effective way of getting this message out there to say look there has been this urgent update you need to be aware of this immediately because much as the emphasis in the media has been about the older gener- you know, older population, nursing homes getting it, it's also been frontline workers. Yeah, a big proportion of whom are women who are breastfeeding. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So for anyone then who has stopped breastfeeding, so I read a little bit um, from Wendy, I do, you've seen this as well, haven't you? The Breastfeeding Network pharmacist. Yeah. The excellent Wendy. Um, yeah. And she was saying about actually, you know, the, everything you've said basically echoed everything you know you've said and she also said if anyone is struggling with grief breastfeeding grief from having stopped breastfeeding prematurely or before they wanted to because they wanted to have the covid vaccine or they felt they needed to have the covid vaccine to protect themselves or protect other members of their family or whatever um then to refer them to the national breastfeeding helpline to consider relactation yeah if that's what's if that's something they wanted to do yeah and there's also lots of information online Mm. and especially if you have been especially if you've been breastfeeding especially in the uk because of um, maternity leave Mm. the chances are that they're going to have been breastfeeding for at least six months Mm. so even having had a break of a week or so it's not too late at all to offer the breast again. So the most effective things are availability to baby, so offering the breast. Um, You can also do um, hand expressing Mm -hmm. regularly to sort of build up and things. Mm -hmm. But the chances are you may have still noticed that you were leaky. You might notice, especially if you're you're, um, coming out of the shower, rubbing rubbing yourself to dry yourself that you may have been a bit leaky and things yeah, yeah. so it's just a case of persistence you know, offering expressing yeah. and you know just keeping keeping your child close by offering them at those normal times that they would have had the breast and things yeah, yeah. and that hopefully you can build it up again um lucy ruddle is an ibcrc with quite a big facebook and um social instagram media presence media. social media presence and she has actually got a book even on relactation yeah um, that you can buy and lots and lots of information generally available for free online as well yeah and yeah. um yeah any ibcrc would be happy to point you in the right direction of information and you know to offer yeah offer further support if needed but it could be even that you just need that point in the right direction yeah, sure. and the national breastfeeding helpline are amazing they're available 9 30 a.m till 9 30 p.m and 365 days a year yeah so yeah so it's really sad for anyone that is in the position of having to consider that and you know i just feel awful for you if you're sitting there thinking that's me um, I can't yeah. imagine how you would be feeling um, and I'm sorry you have to even consider that but the, it is the message now for us to know as 
professionals for our own knowledge in terms of having the vaccine and breastfeeding our babies and also for you know eventually this is going to circulate down to the greater population and who comes into contact with breastfeeding mothers oh health visitors do so yeah you know it isn't going to be an important message for you to know as a health professional that it is perfectly safe for breastfeeding women there's absolutely no reason to think that it would be higher risk for breastfeeding women than any other woman you know yeah there so everything we've said already about safety and efficacy of vaccines you know still applies um in the case of breastfeeding um and we do have good good information about that now so hopefully that's helpful for people who are breastfeeding or thinking about it um yeah So the other thing that's sort of connected, and you talked about conception um, already, but I wanted to just talk about pregnancy a little bit. So this is different from breastfeeding. Obviously, it's an obviously different thing. Um, (laughs) But they also have is a difference in terms of the advice so at the minute we're not routinely advising the vaccine in pregnancy um however if you are a frontline healthcare worker you can still have the vaccine if even if you're pregnant okay um and they say that they want you to base that decision on a risk benefit analysis and a conversation with your doctor and healthcare provider or your midwife or whoever you want to talk to about it um and I, I've done a bit of reading on this um, because I know this would be relevant to a lot of people and people might be considering pregnancy as well and might be wanting to think about that. Um, so, you know, you're looking at risk benefits. Obviously, initially, it's your risk of catching COVID that you're wanting to consider with that. Um, and that's highly individual. Um, I mean, I'm making the assumption here that as, you're, as a practising health visitor, if you're doing face-to-face contacts, especially in homes where you're likely to have poor ventilation, poor social distancing, or very yeah. difficult to maintain social distancing. I personally find it impossible to do two metres in, in a normal home visit yeah. for the entire time. I cannot yeah. put my hand on heart and say I've ever managed no. that. No. Um, so, you know, I would consider that to be relatively high risk. You, you, it's difficult to put in place those measures to protect yourself. Um so therefore, you know, you've got a, a relatively high risk of catching COVID. Um, now, in terms of the risk of serious illness, if you do catch it, um, we've got quite an unclear picture on this, unfortunately, from the data. Obviously, we're cautious to start with because we know that things like flu, whooping cough and some other viruses or lots of other viruses can be very, very serious in pregnancy. And we know generally illness in pregnancy can be more serious than at other times in terms of the impact of pregnancy on your immune system. Um, and we don't yet have good data on the impact of COVID in pregnancy, which is Again, very unfortunate, to be very honest, because actually, if we've managed to produce vaccines in this time, why do we not have good data? But anyway, um, we don't. There is a large scale study going on at Imperial at the minute to research it. Um, And there have been studies. I'm not saying there hasn't been any studies. So there was a UK OSS study in May 2020, and that found that the majority of serious illness in pregnancy occurred during the third trimester. Which would make sense with it having a respiratory basis, wouldn't it? Because, yeah. You know, it's third trimester. That's when you, if you yeah. get a chest infection, it's really going to be tricky to try and shift it because you can't even get a good breath in. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, the third trimester being the, the key part, really, for serious illness. And I think that has been reflected, hopefully, in a lot of the policy around, you know, visiting up to 28 weeks and that kind of thing. Um, there was a BMJ study which I read, which was released in September 
2020. And that Mm -hmm. seemed to find from their data that pregnant women who catch COVID are at higher risk of premature birth. So they found around a 6% spontaneous preterm birth rate. Um, and also at higher risk of ICU admission and of invasive ventilation than of the non-pregnant women are of a similar age. Yeah. So their comparison group, obviously. Um, um, something to add into this, actually, which is more, I know, anecdotal annoyingly, I've just thought of it and I should have thought and tried to get the article. No, okay. It was um, a health visitor in, or no, a health visitor, a nurse, I think, in Birmingham. Yeah. Who died of COVID a few days after having her baby yeah and I think the birth had been induced because she was ill already Mm. and one of the key things that they've picked up in the inquest to her death is that when she was initially admitted her observations were measured on a standard is it a muse chart right the the sort of triggering instead of an obstetric chart and so while she she was if they'd used the correct chart they would have seen that she was at higher risk then it came out oh on the, the measuring chart. And that simple error meant that she was pretty much sat on for longer than she should have been. Oh, that's tragic. And would have had a major impact on how fast they would have reacted Gosh, and poor things. Woman, poor family. So it's that horrible thing where, yeah, and the, the, my immediate thought was, my God, hearing this, it would just make me think if I was in that situation, mm. the last thing you want to do is to be in hospital having your obs taken and then having to around to the go, are you measuring that on the correct chart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for heaven's are sake, you, you have to assume you, a certain level. Tell, yeah, you can tell here with this, like, you know, 36-week bump that I'm pregnant, can you make sure that goes on an obstetric chart and not a regular yeah. chart? But also, I mean, you know, as I'm saying that, I'm aware that when we're investigating these things, it these small details that seem ridiculous in hindsight are exactly the kind of small details that, you know, accidents that do happen in real life. Yeah. So you know it's it's desperately sad obviously um and it must be awful as well for the healthcare professionals involved um oh god yeah, yeah but essentially i suppose what i'm what i'm wanting to raise with that bmj study is that there is a potentially higher risk of covid um for women pregnant women than there is for non-pregnant counterparts so yes um and also um around one in four infants in their study that were born to covid positive mothers required nicu admission yeah. So obviously a much higher then, rate of NICU admission yeah. than in the general population. Now obviously, um, if we couple that with the increased risk of premature birth, so there could yeah. be a confounding factor there in terms of prematurity, but um, or perhaps not a confounding factor, perhaps a mechanism more. Um, but anyway, the point I'm making is that if you're looking at a risk-benefit decision, it might be that you factor in a potentially increased risk of harm from COVID yeah. if you caught it into that risk-benefit decision. Well, there's, there's also that thing of, I mean, yeah, so a quarter of babies to COVID-positive mothers require NICU admission. Yeah. That means they're then separated from the exactly, baby. Exactly, yeah, all the all the, the impact impacts on, not just on feeding, but on mental health, attachment, yeah. mm-hmm. bonding, um, a humongous... And obviously, yeah, I mean, not to, not to play down the impact that having COVID as a pregnant woman yeah. would have on you, it, it, but baby baby birth are completely aside, it'd be an extremely stressful thing to happen to you. And we know, obviously, stress can have a negative impact now. Yeah. As I'm saying that, I'm really aware that's probably not a massively helpful conclusion for a frontline pregnant health visitor right now. So if you're listening to this, um, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry and I don't mean yeah. that to sound... 
Um, oh, stress is bad for your baby, so don't be stressed. What a stupid thing to say, uh, Amy. No, I know. Um, I, know. I suppose I'm just I'm I'm trying to validate anyone who's been in that position or who is pregnant and practicing right now for how normal I think it is to feel really nervous and really stressed and anxious yeah. about that. Um, obviously, you know thinking about risk benefit decisions in terms of taking the vaccine if you're pregnant you want to factor in any health risk factors that you've got already obviously so if you have diabetes hypertension obesity you know older women or women from um black and ethnic minorities um those are all relevant to factor in in terms of your risk benefit um in terms of the risk of the vaccine okay um, we obviously don't know any of the vaccines currently that are out there, the Moderna, the Pfizer or the Oxford. None of them have been directly tested on pregnant women. Um, having said that, we do know previous vaccines and we know that there's no known risk of vaccinating pregnant women with an inactivated virus or with bacterial vaccines or toxids, toxoids even. So they're all different types of vaccines. Um, we generally advise caution in pregnancy with live vaccines, okay? And that's due to like a theoretical risk um, yeah. to pregnant women. Um, there's been some debate that I've read, and you may have read this if you're pregnant, over whether the Oxford vaccine is a live vaccine or not. So as you remember in my description, it uses a chimpanzee adenovirus as a viral yeah. vector um, and they then insert the genetic code of coronavirus into that um, and weaken it genetically so that um, it can't replicate in the body now there's been some debate because obviously it does contain a virus the oxford va vaccine um, not coronavirus importantly um, but we don't consider the oxford vaccine to be a truly live vaccine okay because it can't replicate so in terms of the pregnancy live vaccines advice we don't consider the even the oxford vaccine to be live and obviously the um mrna vaccines are not live um, yeah. at the minute we're not routinely recommending it in pregnancy just purely because we don't have specific trial data on the safety yet um and the mrna vaccines are obviously a new mechanism so we don't really have a previous kind of um vaccine that uses the same mechanism that we can say oh we might expect it to behave in this way so it does you know there's a there's an element of um concern there obviously legitimate concern for pregnant women i think um we do have a viral vector vaccine um that was developed for ebola and as administered in pregnancy um and it had a reasonable safety profile in pregnancy and it was considered to be you know of a lot of value in the ebola academic yeah um that used of a viral vector in exactly the same way as the oxford one does um the final thing just to mention about the pregnancy breastfeeding fertility is there was a rumor that the covid vaccines causes infertility i'd like to be really yeah. clear on this one and i have dug into it that is a total hoax okay so yeah. we absolutely know that it does that is that is completely artificial oh fabricated yeah. fake news okay there's some evidence from animal studies that catching covid disease itself might interfere with your fertility so oh, wow. you, yeah so you've got more risk from covid than you have from the vaccines in terms of that yeah so just right. to kind of put okay. that one to bed um so i think the next thing that's sort of caused a lot of worry and i know it's something which I've seen a lot of frustration about yeah. is the, the dosing regime because obviously mm. it started off being recommended to have the doses three weeks apart yes. and then suddenly in what felt like a very political move 
they then were like, no, have them three months apart. And they seem to be going for a greater number of people having one vaccine yeah. than getting everyone fully vaccinated, which, to be fair, I think, I feel like I understand a bit better having had you talk already about the... Um, Effic- efficacy, efficacy levels. Yeah. Levels. So I'm hoping that's relevant. I think relevant we realise that that actually has you know, led to a bit more straightforwardness yeah i mean the the first thing to know really about the dosing regimes are the different um vaccines the moderna info says you're supposed to have two doses 28 days apart okay um that's what their trial was based on they found an efficacy of 95 percent. interestingly noted 14 days after dose one okay so they had really high levels after the first dose obviously they then did a second dose so we don't know how long that's sustained or anything like that um but that is a good level of efficacy after dose one the pfizer one said two doses 21 days apart and they found 52.4 percent starting from day 12 after the first vaccination so we know you get some protection after the first vaccination and then you get the maximum protection seven days after the second dose and the oxford one says two doses four to 12 weeks apart and their efficacy data didn't seem to make a big difference in terms of when they gave the second dose in terms of the um, efficacy levels that they found um, possibly they even found a stronger protection with longer intervals between doses so for the oxford wow. vaccine which is let's remember the one that we have the most of in the uk yeah, yeah. Um, it's actually a very very good policy decision to stretch that to 12 weeks apart we might get a more effective immune response from the oxford wow. vaccine doing it that way um and certainly very high protection against hospitalisation was seen 21 days after dose one from the Oxford, um, suggesting that we've got really high short-term protection against severe disease from that. Um, yeah. So that's what the actual companies are recommending. Now, they've made the decision um, to give the vaccines closer to the 12-week window in terms of the separation, the interval, um, rather than different windows based on different vaccines um now look i've got mixed feelings about this okay because i appreciate that there's lots of arguments against this or lots of concerns that people have so first off it's reducing public faith and trust in the politicians which is risky at the minute in terms of vaccine hesitancy Mm -hmm. we want nice clear messaging we don't want people being suspicious of our politicians um it's also not an ideal strategy. So obviously the best thing would be if we'd made better public health decisions early in the pandemic. You know, if decisions had been different early on, we might be in a position where we had more choices right now um, than we do. Um, and agreed, it also sounds good politically. So they're able to say that they could have vaccinated more people more quickly, okay? Um, it's also unethical and unfair to those people who've had their first vote dose because they're then being told after consenting to the first dose that the second dose has been moved backwards. And there doesn't seem to be any acknowledgement that that might have impacted on their informed consent. OK, so all of that being said, um, there is a slight increased risk of viral mutation from giving the doses further apart, a theoretical risk okay, of, mm. of viral so- mutation. And is that similar to the fact that we know that there's this new strain of it? Is exactly. That so, yeah, the, the new thing, strain yeah. that we've got is a mutation. Um, 
we know that, that as we vaccinate more people, we will have a higher risk of viral mutation in response to more people being vaccinated. That is just something that we are going to face at some point, inevitably. Um, yeah. And to be honest, it sounds like a terrifying prospect, but actually it might not be as scary as it sounds generally mutations produce milder but more easily transmittable versions of a virus okay Mm -hmm. so there's no reason to think it would produce something more deadly um and they're also likely to be similar enough to respond to the vaccine that we've got yes it's a big protein in terms of viral proteins um and the changes the mutations are very slight changes on that Um, i see i've seen it described as um it's um like the same protein but wearing a hat Right. Like, you'd still recognise your friend if they were wearing a hat. Yes. That's the analogy <laughs> I, I see. Um, I see. That's a good way of putting it. And, and you know, when we do face mutations, even if they don't respond to the vaccine, the mRNA vaccines that we've seen are extremely quick to produce. Yeah. Which so, then, I suppose, makes them cheaper in the long run as well, because it's a, a quicker production should equal... Less production costs, I would hope, I guess. I suppose, so those things all being said, okay, so they're my kind of um, concerns with it, if you like, or they're my sort of caveats, okay? Yeah. Having said all of that, the bottom line here is that it's not likely to be harmful on an individual basis that they've spaced these vaccines out more. It's not going to cause you any harm. So we, at the minute... If you have um, individuals with uncertain vaccination status, we regularly repeat vaccine schedules for them, possibly using different brands. Um, On an individual level, the worst that's going to happen is that it offers you a lower level of efficacy than the 95% or the 70% found by the trial data. We don't know how much lower. It might be a little bit lower. It might be a lot lower. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's the minimum um, estimate we've got um, from the from any of the trial data is around 52%. So we know it's going to give you um, at least that amount. Um, I accept yeah. that it's disappointing for you on an individual level if you're expecting an efficacy level of 95 and you're ending up with a lower and unsure amount, somewhere between 60% or 52% and 95%. You know, I accept that's disappointing. Um, yeah. But it's certainly a lot better than having no vaccine. Yeah. Um, you know, so it shouldn't be a reason not to have the vaccine is the point I'm making. No. Because and there's also, I think, the point to make about um, how important it is to offer the same vaccine for both dosages. So, yeah, there's... Um, yeah, the mix and matching. I mean, they're saying... The Green Book is um, saying to take the... Um, the same vaccine as the as the priority every effort should be made to determine which vaccine the individual received and complete with the same vaccine um but they're saying for individuals who started the schedule and who attend for vaccination at a site where the same vaccine is not available or if the first product received is unknown it's reasonable to offer one dose of the locally available product to complete the schedule and i guess that's just like i was saying is similar to in terms of um, uncertain vaccination status i think it's that interesting thing isn't it where there's going to be so much that no matter how many trials there are you need to be doing it in practice and actually have these occasions where this happens to then have the wider picture and the data available as to what the real impact is isn't it i think um, there's there's an element of we need to have this when we test it in the real world it shows the things that we need to know um and there's research ongoing with this so all these questions are being looked into but this is obviously you know the information that we have at the moment and i think 
what's clear is that the vaccine efficacy that we're looking for, as I said at the beginning, is 50%, okay? And we've yeah. got, at the minute, if we look at the flu vaccines as an example, our estimated pooled efficacy across, you know, all the flu vaccines, the best kind of number we can come up with across everything, is about 59%. And we still Blimey. consider that to be worth having. So, yes. you know, yeah. I, I think um, a lot of That's the confusion bonkers. here comes from a misunderstanding of the number around the efficacy. Yeah. So people think that a vaccine efficacy of 50% means that you have a 50% chance of having symptomatic COVID. That yeah. is not what that number means, no. okay? It means you have a 50% reduced risk of having symptomatic COVID. You have 50% less risk of catching it as a vaccinated person yeah. compared to an unvaccinated person. And we've been thinking about all the decisions we've been making as clinicians through this pandemic, you know, masks, gloves, distancing, all of those things are about reducing the risk of having serious illness. And so yeah. reducing our risk by 50% is a, is a, a that's something worth oh, doing. Oh, gotcha, massive, massive. Um, I think... Um, Sorry, I know I'm, no, I'm talking for a lot, but I think there's also a concern that people think that the efficacy of this vaccine might be, you know, reduced by spacing out the vaccine. And because we don't have any evidence of prevention of transmission through the vaccine, that means we don't have a moral imperative to do it. So people mm -hmm. sort of feeling like it doesn't make a difference to anyone else, whether I have it or not, since it doesn't stop me transmitting it. Um, but that's also not true. So even if what I said at the beginning about transmission even if we assume there's no benefit from transmission, which is yeah. unlikely, we're still going to get a huge public health benefit from vaccination. Even at 50% efficacy, that still means 50% less hospitalizations than we would have seen, 50% less ITU beds, 50% less admissions across the NHS, which is incredibly important at the minute. You know, you were saying that yesterday London hospitals announced a major yeah, incident, yeah. which is only kind of comparable it to... It wasn't Brentford even... It was, or, it was London. It was the Mayor London. of London announcing it. I mean, yeah. and those have only happened in sort of Grenfell Tower, the terrorist attacks, where it's yeah. literally been a very immediate, short-term thing. Exactly. This is a state of... I mean, it's almost like, you know, there's no end point yeah. at the moment. So I we think feel like it is going to get The public health implications of this vaccine are vital, even at a wider dosing regime. Um and and it's still you are still doing your bit for preventing yeah. trans for preventing the public health um, damage um, by having it, and you're likely to also preventing transmission as well. And you're yeah. certainly also getting a major personal benefit from a reduced risk of having a severe symptomatic COVID. So yeah. you know politicians are making this decision at a population level, and yes, you know you might disagree with their decisions. And it might, but it wouldn't necessarily stop you taking the vaccine yourself, you know. So I'm hoping that that has given people an overview of the safety, the efficacy, and hopefully answered some questions. If you're sitting there with um, a question that's burning and you're feeling like we haven't covered it, I really want to hear from you. So please message us, okay? Um, if you're thinking it, yeah. someone else is. And I'll reduce yeah. an update, I'll produce an update to this um episode that covers your question okay so yeah. you don't i don't have to say your name you can be anonymous but please email us um so jen's going to leave you with the staff i'm going to link yeah. to all the resources in our um blurb and if anyone wants a copy of my notes that i've been reading from that i've been working from i'm really happy to share those they are just my personal notes but i'm happy to do that if anyone wants a copy of them just let me know yeah 
And so, um, yeah, if you want to get in touch, if you want notes, if you want a question or anything, you can get in touch with us on our social media. Um, we're on Facebook, I am a health visitor. On Instagram, I am a HV. And you can email us, um, I am a health visitor at gmail.com. And yeah, no, we hope this has been useful. I know it's been quite a long podcast, but there was just so much important stuff to get over to you guys. And um, we hope that it's helped inform you, educate you and give you that thirst for finding out more. So until next time, take care and bye bye.